back to Conversations for the Good. Hello, Dr. Jane. Hey, Anna. How are you today? I am very excited that we're deepening into our practices and present moment awareness, as you suggested, and we are finding opportunities to bring this mindful awareness into the simplest tasks and activities in our everyday lives, like, you know, waiting in line or on hold or trimming our nails, petting the dog. There are endless possibilities. Well, you know, Anna, that's one of the many beauties of these practices. You know, we're able to do them anywhere, anytime. We just stop, breathe, you know, welcome the moment with whatever it holds. No judgment, no criticism. There it is. Yeah, I find that the more often I practice, the more likely I am to step into random activities with the awareness. I'm also finding that the dimensions of the pause, the portal, the and presence become clear with practice. Every time I practice, they just become clear. Um, They tend to be fleeting, but nevertheless, you know, I'm noticing more. Well, that's great. That's great. I mean, remember, these labels are merely signposts or guides. They provide really the talking points for our conversations. You know, in the actual practices, they show up in our own direct experience, kind of that immediate experience. And they're uniquely our individual experience. You know, the kicker is if we start to go after them, you know, uh, searching or seeking, they often defy our efforts. You know, we just can't, can't catch up with them. You know, we're practicing being present as we focus our attention and then being in the awareness with whatever shows up. You know, we're not trying to make something happen. You know, we don't create awareness. Let me just say that in the first place. We're not creating awareness or making it happen. You know, it's already here, always. And with practice, we begin to recognize this along with other nuances, like the flow of thoughts and sensations, you know, the spaces that arise, the noticeable shift um, into an experience of being in our awareness, kind of being aware of being aware, you know, and, and this is what we've been calling presence. Yeah. So we're not to hunt down specific experiences, but allow our experiences to arise in our consciousness. Yes. Yes, that's right. You know, it's always about allowing the experience to unfold without really any expectation or effort or, or any striving. You know, when Quite frankly, Anna, this runs counter to our Western culture. You know, we, we have an approach of efforting and striving to make things happen, you know, kind of get down there and, and push it forward, you know. And, and what we're talking about with our mindful awareness is, you know, it starts with us showing up in the moment, you know, and this begins the conscious choice to step off the train of our mind, that train that runs 24-7. And this is how we begin every practice both the formal practices like the welcoming breath and the body scan and the loving kindness. And and then also the more informal practices like the mindful bells that we've been talking about, you know, chopping the pepper, washing the dish, you know, we're allowing more and more mindful moments into our daily lives. Well, don't get me wrong, Dr. Jane, but you know, this, this, this all sounds lovely and moments of peace and serenity um, that gets my vote for sure. <laughs> yeah. 
Yet the reality is that we live busy lives and we're not residing in, you know, a monasteries, you know, I mean, (laughs) I just wanted to point that out to you. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. So, so my personal day revs up or like most of us very quickly from the time my feet hit the floor, you know, places to go, people to meet jobs that rely on me or us, I should say for all of us, I feel many of us feel this way. Mm -hmm. You know, Anna, and that's the reality that we've created. You're right. You know, it controls us on a daily, controls us on a daily basis, you know, and I'm not looking to have us move into judgment or self-criticism with our current reality. You know, it's what we've learned to do. And quite frankly, it's what we believe we must do. You know, this is the conditioning that we're always bumping up against when we desire to move into any change process. So our conditioning, you know, this term comes up routinely in our conversations, and I need more clarity on what we mean and how it fits into our quest to live more consistently from our best and highest self. Well, Anna, we've included the term conditioning in several of our past conversations, you know, and, and we've included it as a dimension that influences our interpretation of ourselves, others, the world. You know, it's our conditioning, which really are the lenses, you know, onto the world. You know, we also couple conditioning with our personal history. And, you know, this includes the influences from family, school, society, our community. And we've referred to this as our backstory. Well, yes. I, now I recall when we talked about the ABCs of thinking, we referred to the backstory as the filter through which we interpret and explain all situations and events in life. That's right. That's right. We're exploring how we can access and operate from the best version of ourselves. You know, this remains our focal point. So we've placed the concept of conditioning and the backstory, you know, with all their moving parts in the context of our growth as humans, you know, ultimately realizing our potential to be fully human. I'm still an eager explorer, that's for sure. Ah, So, you know... Let's get a sense of the territory. I mean, uh, most of us in our ordinary lives and states of consciousness, you know, most of us believe that we fall short of, you know, where we, where we could be, where we'd like to be sometimes a little, sometimes a lot, you know, and, and this is true, even with people who've been high achievers, you know, maybe there's something that kind of niggles us uh, about, I shoulda, woulda, coulda, or kind of only I had done this or that or something that we've kept on the back burner, even though we think it's important. You know, things that we've maybe neglected could be things that we meant to do or our relationships or or even ourselves. Yes, those dreams left behind, you know, sometimes it's hard to hang on when there are so many other demands in our lives. Yes, yes. And, And, you know, Anna, again, we're not here to criticize or shame anyone. You know, we do want to support an honest look at each of our lives and decide for ourselves what choices are necessary for the best parts of us to bloom. You know, and if we think of human development as a continuum, you know, most of us fall within the middle range of the continuum, you know, and and I think of the continuum as having, you know, kind of pathological behaviors on one end, and this is an extreme, you know, (laughs) and then on the other end is that, you know, the fully conscious individual, full functioning, self-actualized individual, 
you know, and the middle ground is this vast area of possibility. You know, we often perceive growth, you know, as our movement or evolution from this middle to- territory toward mm, living more consciously, you know, being more alive, moving closer to actualizing the individual potential within ourselves. You know, and, and I use the term consciousness here because this is the state where our awareness generates the possibility to make conscious choices through, you know, clear sight of alternatives and, and a clear perception of, you know, what is right action. So, you know, a, a fully conscious, mindfully aware, alive person, you know, is present in the moment and can perceive without a lot of biases of past experiences or our mental and emotional misperceptions or, or preconceptions, you know, that they know the biases, they recognize the biases, but the biases, you know, um, really aren't a determining factor. That's not where most of us reside with any regularity. I, I mean, we're learning about it, working toward it, but that's certainly not the usual start to our day. No, I, I think you're right. You know, this state, you know, is really, it really isn't experienced uh, by most of humanity. It is, however, and this is important, it's the potential for each human being. You know, the fact that, that it's an ideal state and hard to attain doesn't negate it as a possibility. You know, so often the, the desire for growth is motivated by feeling that lack of aliveness you know, that um, inhabits our ordinary, everyday conscious states, you know, and, and over the years, you know, I've had people say that they really weren't sure what they were looking for, you know, when they start this quest, um, but they had a sense that something was missing or incomplete, you know, kind of that, that question of, is this all there is? And where do they start? Well, interestingly <laughs> enough, when, when people begin to ask this question, at least in our culture, you know, they usually begin by rearranging their life, you know, buying something, changing jobs, moving. You know, I sometimes have referred to this as rearranging the beach chairs. You know, it's the external solution that really can only be addressed effectively from inside of us, not externally. Oh, yeah, it's easier to rearrange the beach chairs. <laughs> that's, that's true. It is. But it's never enough, you know, nor is the, the new car, or the boat or the trip to Jamaica. I mean, they're all great. But, um, you know, it, and none of these are bad things. It's, it's all truly normal behavior kind of run by our history. Again, our conditioning, you know, these are the behaviors that try to fix the missing something or, or, or maybe, um, you know, it's a, an attempt to allay our uneasiness. You know, they're the biases. These are the biases that reside within each of us. And they come in many varieties. You know, not always simple, not always obvious. You know, they're personal biases, you know, and they might include our mental attitudes, our emotional predispositions, could be our beliefs or values. You know, and they're so embedded in us that we often take them to be our true reality. They feel like facts. And these biases determine our ideas and our feelings, our actions, our relationships, both with ourselves, you know, with others, you know, and they influence our character structure and often our, even our body structure and our lifestyle. Well, these biases truly run the show of our lives. So how do they come about and why are they so hidden? 
know that I, I think the answer, at least the answer that I've been able to find, uh, comes from the psychological theory of conditioning that we've talked about. You know, and, and I'm going to keep this explanation really as simple as possible for our purposes. But the ongoing research has demonstrated that humans are impressionable, and and we can be conditioned to respond in certain ways to certain stimuli. You know, and this starts in infancy. You know. With, with being a baby, you know, that baby responds to both internal and external stimuli, you know, and, and think about it, you know, a baby cries when they're hungry. And yet when, when we feed a baby, you know, and they're content, they fall asleep. You know, the environment, however, you know, isn't always responsive to a child's needs, you know, or a child's particular nature, you know, and as time passes, the child might be discouraged from certain behaviors, you know, and encouraged toward other behaviors, you know, what what we might call, you know, normal, typical kind of toddler training, you know, and whether the direct uh, directive that's given by the parent or the caregiver is that's okay or that's not okay, the actions that follow, you know, sometimes indicate that the child's choice doesn't align with what the adult wants. So, Reward and punishment are often brought into the equation, you know, and a child is also, you know, during this time is encouraged explicitly or sometimes implicitly, you know, not to feel or express certain emotions, you know, and this is all about keeping the adults in the environment comfortable. Yeah, so much happens in those early years, Dr. Jane, and it doesn't get easier. The hardest, I know it was the hardest job I ever had and the most rewarding yet challenging work. Well, I agree. I agree. You know, and the child is completely dependent on their caregivers and, and learns early to keep their love and protection, you know, and, and the way they do this is to accommodate the adults, you know, and if the child fails to accommodate the caregivers, you know, the child fears losing the caregiver's love, you know, and this fret threatens a child's very sense of survival. You know, a withdrawal of love or disapproval is interpreted as life-threatening by a child. You know, so think about it, Anna. I mean, the instinct to survive is the basis for a child's adaptation and conditioning. You know, it's it's like it's it's self-preservation on a most on the most basic level. Wow. Well, it sounds so primal and the pull is so strong. A child must go along with whatever the adults in the environment dictate and do what others want for their survival. Yes, yes. Hmm. And you can see then how a child adopts the parent or the adult's values, their attitudes, or maybe in the long run, they might rebel against them. You know, either way, a child is conditioned and the conditioning becomes becomes so ingrained that they're taken as one's own identity, you know, with all the related patterns of thoughts and feelings and behaviors. You know, this then becomes habitual. The child's relationship to their parents and caregivers, you know, is then the prototype relationship, which impacts the child during their very vulnerable and impressionable years. But but then it determines their relationship to themselves and others, you know for a lifetime. I'm seeing more clearly how deeply the early conditioning goes and how it impacts us for our entire lives. That's right. 
That's right. You know, we can see how a child learns to avoid experiencing and expressing certain things if they know that the love and approval will be withheld or or that they'll be punished for them. You know, this conditioning strengthens a tendency to experience and behave and express in ways that bring love and approval. You know, so certain undesired impulses and feelings, ideas, behaviors are suppressed you know, and in time they become repressed, you know, and, and what, what I mean by this is they move into the unconscious, you know, it, it then becomes the role of the ego. And this is using a psychoanalytic term, you know, it, it becomes the role of the ego and the psyche to suppress and repress these undesirable impulses, you know, because the, the ego's main job is to keep us safe. I've often wondered about the ego, you know, like what it is, you know, what is it, where did it develop and why? Yeah. Well, the, well, the ego develops by listening and obeying the demands of those external authorities, you know, the parents, the caregivers, eventually the teachers, you know, always to avoid their displeasure and to gain love and approval, you know, and, and to be effective, the ego really must develop ways to check and control certain impulses, natural impulses, you know, so the the infant baby, part of us, you know, wants what it wants when it wants it, you know, and quite frankly, some people never grow out of this, you know, but but the way these impulses are controlled um, would be by the ego's defense mechanisms, you know, and these are mostly unconscious mechanisms that protect us from our primal impulses. They're still there. They're still there, you know, and mm-hmm. they keep, you know, that the, the, um, um, when, the, when the mechanisms are protecting us, they keep us in good standing with the authority figures, you know, with the other adults who might otherwise dole out disapproval or punishment. Well, can you say a little more about the defense mechanisms? Well, this is one of my favorite topics, quite frankly, Anna. You know, I've, I've often recalled these defense mechanisms, kind of the psychological gymnastics of the ego, you know, and, and they help us maintain psychic harmony. So the mechanisms like denial or suppression, rationalization, repression, you know, they operate on an unconscious level. We are not aware of them in everyday life. So they operate on an unconscious level. And they help us maintain distance from those impulses that are alive and well and living deep within us. That the impulses that would get us into trouble, or or if we played them out, they'd frame us very negatively. Hmm. Well, Dr. Jane, can you explain how they operate? Well, sure. Let's just take a couple. You know, for instance, Anna, you know, let's take denial. And denial, again, it, this isn't denial, is not conscious lying. It's unconscious, you know, and it involves ignoring the reality of a situation in order to avoid anxiety, or, or it might be used to block external events from awareness or even refusing to face, you know, some obvious truth. So an example would be, you know, for, for decades, I've, I've worked with a myriad of compulsive behaviors, compulsive eating, addictions, things like that, and I would hear patient stories you know, where they would talk about, you know, kind of knowing that there was a problem. But for many, for many years, the denial was too strong. And it often took a life-threatening situation or a crisis to break through the denial, you know. And yet, 
if we would have hooked them up to a lie detector test while they were in denial, and if we would have asked them, do you think there's a problem? You know, even though their lives were falling apart, they would have said, no, I don't have a problem. And they would have passed the lie detector with flying colors. You know, or, or take rationalization, you know, rationalization, you know, these tend to be our excuses. You know, they, they are the, the what we're trying to, to reason, be reasonable about behavior that, that very often is, is negative or destructive. You know, rationalization really aims at logically justifying deviant behavior, immoral behavior, unacceptable behavior. You know, remember, we're trying to maintain psychic harmony. So it might be that a person's maybe applying for a, a job promotion. They really want it. And when they receive the news that it isn't to be, they would say, yeah, I really didn't want it anyway. You know, or, or making excuses when we've all done this, you know, for not, not eating healthy or exercising, you know, and using an excuse like I don't have time or it's not really that important. So in cases where the ego's defense mechanisms, you know, are, are um, you know, working for them or working with them, you know, it helps the individual maintain that psychic harmony. Now, that's the whole purpose. I mean, it really is destructive, but what we're looking for is that feel good or feel okay and still maintain the, the behavior that tends to be destructive. So we want to maintain our self-respect. We want to avoid guilt. So we're doing some indiscretion or some right, some you know, um, outright wrongdoing, but we don't want to be responsible for it. So, you know, all of these tend to be forms of self-deception. You know, the aim is always of somehow being able to dismiss or making the wrongdoing acceptable. Well, how does it all play out as we mature? Well, initially. You know, we rely on authority figures, the adults, and the rules, you know, to guide us. But in time, gosh, Anna, we internalize the rules, all the rules and the bylaws of what parents, teachers, and other authority figures expect. So the child psychically takes in the parental demands, and they become the child's internal code of conduct. These are called introjects, you know, and they're internalized and encoded in our unconscious. So again, we're not even aware of them, you know, and they operate like they're our own, you know, and our ego is, is really kind of the, I think of it as kind of that internal um, psych central kind of operating system, you know, with the task of keeping us in line from behind the scenes. You know, and, and all of this is, is internalized material and becomes our sense of self, really our identity. You know, when you and I say, I, this is what we're talking about in our life. And as we move toward our quest to live more consistently from our best and highest self, you know, we want to be able to explore these dimensions from the vantage point of mindful awareness. Yeah, you know, this is a lot to take in, Dr. Jane. I'm, I'm hoping that we can return to some of this information and how it relates to our quest. Oh, I agree, Anna. I agree. I, I think we've just we've just started to dive into some of this unconscious material, you know. And there there are a, a few more dimensions that we're going to be covering that I really think are worthy of our ex um, investigation, you know. That also reside in our unconscious and are always running the show from behind the scenes. Scenes, you know. And 
and yet they can be revealed with our awareness. So what practices shall we consider for the week, Dr. Jane? Well, Anna, let's continue to combine practices um, on a daily basis in a sequence that includes practices that maybe some that we enjoy or some that we, we may feel we need you know, more time with. You know, um, always starting with a welcoming breath, but could include the body scan, you know, or watching the thoughts, the loving kindness, you know, any sequence of that or any of those individually, you know, would work out just fine as a regular formal practice. And also let's continue to do the three-minute breathing space, you know, at least twice a day or as needed. So, you know, that also needs to be something that we're giving a little time to. You know, and, and also the, the mindful bells, you know, looking for activities that offer the opportunity to be open to mindfulness in whatever the activity happens to be. You know, and, and, on a, and this comes from my own um, daily practice of, of I walk every day and I really want folks to be open to mindful walking. You know, it doesn't have to be lengthy, um, but during the walk, you're really turning to body sensations really feeling how the body maneuvers itself in that flow of walking, you know, also taking in some of the visuals around us without labeling or criticizing or judging or getting lost in them. I'd also like to begin to ask a question, just kind of dropping it into our awareness. And that is, who do I take myself to be? Who do I take myself to be? Wow, a full week of practices. <laughs> we got this, Dr. Jane. We do, Anna. Thank you so much. Until our next conversation. <laughs>